You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Welcome back to Water Flying. I'm Abby Kellett, a flight instructor in seaplanes and assistant to Steve McCauley, executive director here at the Seaplane Pilots Association. Yes, and as we start this episode, we want to make sure to thank our partners at U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and also the Pacific State Marine Fisheries Commission. You guys help us do what we do, which is be sustainable and help protect the environment. It's something that's important to all of us. And as a seaplane pilot, we want to be good stewards to the waterways. So we love the environment just as much as everyone trying to protect it. And we want to do our part. So conservation and sustainability is a main part of our role here at the Seaplane Pilots Association. Absolutely. And your feedback as listeners is critical to the improvement of this podcast. Tell us what you think by contacting us through social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also email us here at the office, spa at seaplanes.org. And I am so thrilled because I just got to do an intro flight with a good friend of mine who's joining us in the studio today, Miss Quagga D, who is one of the nation's leading experts on aquatic invasive species and specializes in watercraft inspection and decontamination training. So I am so thrilled to have you with us. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you for the flight and thank you for lunch and thank you for having me. I'm so glad you got a chance to go up with Steve. It was a little breezy today, but it's it's just neat. You get to see our world. That was a first experience for me, so, so I had glad. a great time. We'll get you a pin. We have a first seaplane flight. We do. We do. So I have a <laughs> pin for you. Right. So it's so great to finally meet you, Dee. I had the opportunity to attend just a small portion of your online decontamination seminar. So very eye-opening. I had no idea how little I knew. So... I want to do it again. I want to do it in person. I'm We're going really to get you to it. Las Vegas so you can go to Lake Mead and actually go through her in-person class, which is an amazing eye-opening experience. And we will get you qualified to be an inspector yourself. All right. And so this is going to be for our listeners, some of what you do as a decontamination expert. So I'd love you to introduce yourself and maybe explain where your name comes from. Quagga D. <laughs> D, yes. The Lake Mead was the first lake west of the 100th meridian that got to zebra or quagga mussels. Quagga mussels are like zebra mussels on steroids. And so we're trying to protect the rest of the west from invasion of the quagga or zebra mussels. They have a terrible impact recreationally, economically, and uh, ecologically that we want to not have to spend billions of dollars in trying to find a way to mitigate them or control them uh, because once you have them in your waterways, it's hard to get rid of them. Yeah, and I think it's important for people to understand when we say zebra mussels and quagga mussels, they might not understand, number one, how destructive these little critters are and how pervasive they are. So they're smaller than a dime in most cases, Yes, they're freshwater mollusks that uh, reproduce rapidly and they can go from, you know, they can re actually reproduce like 10 septillion in five years. And so that just, just is an explosive growth once, once they've become 
Infested. That's a lot of ways it become infested. Now, see if how much I remember of your courses. So each zebra mussel can have something like three million uh, offspring per year. It's some crazy number that they, you know, there's several different people that say, you know, a million offspring a year. And it, but what happens is at Lake Mead that they're actually spawning every single month. Wow. And so just think about that replicative factor and how explosive and exponential that growth is. And they'll literally feed, filter feed a waterway until it's free of organic matter. Sure. So the zooplankton, the phytoplankton, the small plankton that's in the water that feeds the fish, then they absorb that. And so now you're having an impact on the fisheries. You can have an impact uh, recreationally because the shells on the shoreline, you can cut your feet and people are spending a ridiculous amount of money trying to, like Hoover Dam spends a million dollars a year in just controlling the growth at Hoover Dam, and they never thought that was going to happen. Yeah, so we kind of jumped a little bit here, but I, I want to stress that Quagga has been one of my best partners and, and literally go-to women to help me tackle all the invasive species issues that we're working on. And SPA made a commitment several years ago after I came to your class that we were going to, number one, train all of our board members to be inspector decontaminators uh, to the WIT2 level of training. Uh, I want to become, as you know, a trainer's trainer. And we also want to take our field directors through the program. And we actually have started bringing you and seaplanes to your program. Yes, it was interesting because I train watercraft inspection and decontamination to the 19 western states and some Canadian provinces, and it's mostly government agencies that are intercepting boats at the launch ramps, at the port of entries at their states to try and protect so the boats don't make it into their state or their water body. And then Steve contacts me and he's like, okay, well, we're seaplane pilots. I'm like, well, okay, how do we incorporate watercraft (laughs) to seaplane? And it was really a wonderful eye-opening experience for me, actually, to have the seaplane come out. We got to inspect it. We got to decontaminate it. That was a very interesting to see what what the differences are between seaplanes and watercraft. But then the overlap as well, you know, some of those sneaky areas. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting how you went through that because I know this is, you know, when you're talking about invasive species, I sit very close to Steve in the office. (laughs) I'm, what, 20 feet away from, from your door. So I know that this is such a big part of what you do as executive director here, fighting invasive species and, you know, fair and equal access. So we know that the percentage of seaplanes versus boats is so microscopic. I mean, it's there. And certainly, you know, we want to mitigate any sort of risk and we want to continue to enjoy the waterways that we're doing splash and dashes on. But we have a responsibility to understand our potential as carriers and mitigate that. Um, Steve, kind of going off of you, where are some of the places on a seaplane where you're going to find invasive species? Well, first off, let's talk about that risk analysis, which is something we're very involved with with right now, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, We're working on a multi-year study, which is really going to look at conducting a risk analysis. But it's important for people to realize there's something like 11.8 million. I don't know numbers here. I'm not a numbers guy, but (laughs) there's like (laughs) 11.8 million (laughs) registered boats in the United States. And there's, best we can figure, 68,000 active seaplanes at best. And so it is a very very skewed number, 11.8 million boats versus a very small user group. But it only takes one aircraft, it only takes one boat to spread an invasive species into a new waterway. So we want to lead 
everyone else in our proactiveness to prevent this. So on seaplanes, basically, you identify areas that are similar to boats, uh, any place that can bring water in, any standing shelves or ledges, uh, vertical areas, shaded areas, any place that may have an attachment. And there's a lot of things you can do as far as how long an aircraft is in the water, how long it sits out of the water in your hangar. Basically, when we want to clean, drain, and dry everything we can do at every time. Um, and then also, literally, there's a dehydration effect of us in transit, as we were talking about today, in a 100-mile flight across the state of Florida, that we didn't touch any water for 100 miles, and we had 85-mile-an-hour dehydrating air washing across the floats. Mm-hmm. Well, the, they've determined that the highest risk vector for spreading quagga and zebra mussels is trailered watercrafts because they do go across the United States and back and into Canada where seaplanes do have the ability to do that but they're they're not typically in the water as long as a say a boat for instance the bigger boats are slipped and moored in the water bodies for a very long period of time I mean, I've seen boats that were in the water for 10 years. Wow. Yeah, we've seen some of those at Lake Mead, the houseboats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's just amazing, the growth. Right. Um, and so when you get growth, you get, you know, all the different stages. And, and Bellagers are, I think, probably our biggest single risk because they would be what attaches to the aircraft first. But they're also the most sensitive to a dehydration effect or being... Uh, desiccated where they won't have a survival. And they're also, from what we understand, very thermal sensitive. And you actually got to see that again today on our flight, the four degrees per thousand drop in air temperature. She goes, oh, I'm cold. Can you close the doors? And I'm like, you're in Florida in the summer. Isn't that amazing? It's cold. It's like you don't think to bring a jacket, but you need it. Right. (laughs) So villagers are the microscopic life stage of a quagga or zebra mussel. So you're only going to find that in standing water, and that's mm-hmm. a concern on boats as well. Seaplanes are purposely uptaking raw water, and that makes a big difference. They don't. Yeah, boats are taking up raw water, right? Yeah. For their cooling systems, or generators, or air conditioners, you know that that might be purposely uptaking raw water. Seaplanes want to get rid of any water that's on board, right? right. Yeah, it's a weight liability. It's a CG issue for us. It's a performance issue. So. You know, we don't want to take any unnecessary or any water on, period. And we do everything we can to seal the floats and make them non-conducive to it. So by nature, where boats have cooling systems, they might have sewage systems and all the things that we go through in your class, all the belge areas that may have drainage or spillways, uh, we don't have any of that. Right. Although zebra and quagga mussels are the poster child for the invasive species, there's 186 non-indigenous species in the Great Lakes that we're also concerned about. So mud, plants, animals, or water is what we're not what we're looking for: clean, drain, and dry. Sure. New Zealand mud snails, right. uh, everything else, and we have those all listed in our water landing directory app, and we have the ability through working with our partners at USGS and. U.S. Fish and Wildlife and all the state organizations, Montana Fish and Wildlife, we've done a, quite a few calls in the last couple of weeks uh, where we can actually get feeds from them and actually publish the waterways that have either, number one, a concern that they're at risk or, number two, that they are infected. So we know before we go, we know after we leave that we need to apply prevention procedures so we don't carry the invasive species to another water. And that's most seaplanes today being amphibious of nature, like my airplane that we were flying in today, 
are amphibious and we do have the ability to either clean, get them drain and dry clean drain and dry like or to decontaminate them so i like that so i know it's it's the apple snail right that huge snail that and we it have lays the, that we have <laughs> don't they say it's like the most invasive the nastiest snail it lays those really well, florida ugly I little think is the the top state for invasive species actually yeah. down here i've yeah. heard like the python the pythons pretty, the python's pretty bad people releasing the pythons and then they they are traveling into residential areas where they're not supposed to be. But what would you recommend? You know, I see something. I know that those little eggs that they appear overnight. I mean, the snails lay those, and you just kind of scrape them off. It's real yeah, it gross. Looks like bubble gum on the it surface. Does. It looks like congealed plant. caviar or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just scraping them off, just doing everything you can, re- removing any sort of plant life. I imagine that got caught up on the rudders. Um, getting the water out of the floats, clean, drain, dry as much as you can. What else can we do to mitigate our risk? I think that's probably, you know, knowing what is in the water when you're before you're landing and knowing what you need to make sure that you don't take with you when you go to another water body. Like sure. plant material, floating plants would be an, a situation where I think that seaplanes could have a potential. Probably the biggest thing I see here is is aquatic plants. Um, we have a propensity to see them in Florida more than anything. And the controls here are very loose, in all honesty. They're not inspecting boats. They're not having any kind of real invasive program here in the, in, in the state of Florida. So um, we're always concerned about it. When I go into my lake or go to a lake with weeds, I'm always hyper-concerned. First thing I do is clean my airplane when I get back and decontaminate it. And and that's important. And it's important for us to be very, very proactive on this subject. Because if we don't, as seaplane pilots, if we don't lead the way, uh, the door is going to close on us. Sure. And I, I don't think that most pilots really understand from a regulatory side, if they're not dealing with the regulators and the lawmakers and, and the people that control the resources like I do at, at the executive director level, I don't think they realize as much as you and I, because you know, because you've been in the same meetings as myself, how much... This is a very real topic that's coming down, and if we don't get on top of it, it's going to crush us. I think that it's been wonderful, Steve, that you've really brought the awareness to the Seaplane Pilots Association. If there isn't any better user group than the Seaplane Pilots, out of all the recreational, water body recreational users, that they're the most conscientious, they're the most trained they're the most that are going to actually do clean, drain, and dry because they don't want to have that situation where a water body actually gets shut down to recreating. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, some of the other things that I'm aware of, you know, circling, um, cycling your your water water rudders and circling above the lake, you know, trying to leave what you can at the lake you departed from. So scraping off, you know, anything that you can see. Visually, you know, draining as many compartments as you can, as you have, um, you know, just common sense stuff. Like if you see, wow, we kind of have a flag of aquatic life hanging <laughs> off the airplane. We probably want to leave that behind. Yes. Because you don't know what it's going to do at the next lake. Mm-hmm. So common sense stuff. Just be a good steward of what we're trying to protect, which is all of our lakes that we have such a good time splashing and dashing on. So I know it seems obvious to us working this issue every day, but kind of to reiterate the question being, why should seaplane pilots care about invasive species? Well, if they're concerned about future generations, if they're concerned about the our water quality down the road, you know, I mean, people say to me, well, I don't boat, so it doesn't matter to me. I'm like, well, do you water your lawn? Do you flush your toilet? Do you take a shower? 
water is, you know, probably going to be the last resource that we're all going to be wanting to protect. And so with U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the other organizations out there, they're really trying to do their best on conservation and protection. And it's hard because, you know, you're trying to balance the natural resources but allow recreators. Right. And, you know, where is that fine line? But between being responsible and having a good time. Because, yeah. you know, it's a hobby for a lot of people. These sure. seaplane pilots, they're flying super cubs. Yes. And they're having a really good time. And they're just, they're going to eat. They're going to lunch. I know that's what you guys did today. So just protecting it. And I like that idea of, you know, future generations. I think we get very stuck in the present. And the idea that, well, this is, I have my single engine sea license. And I spent a lot on this airplane. I'm going to land wherever I want. Okay, you don't know the ripple effect, the butterfly effect of what you're going to create in the future. You're further distancing public opinion. I mean, it's going a negative way. Policymakers, they might use your instance and the fact that you weren't courteous as an example of why the waterway shouldn't be open to anyone. Right, and that's why we have so many campaigns out there just to educate the boaters, the seaplane pilots, any other user group that is you know, on the water body that we want to make sure that we aren't having any issues in inoculating that water body with another invasive species because it will degrade our water quality. Yeah, I mean, it's virtually impossible to get rid of these things once they are introduced to our waterway. The only way zebra mussels or quagga mussels have an eradication is when they literally filter the water crystal clear where there's no no organic matter left and they just die off because there's nothing left in the water to eat they kill they they literally eat themselves to death well yeah there was only one eradication that i can remember it was a quarry in virginia yes and but they they, they shocked it in a way that we're not going to do in other waterways you know, they killed everything they killed everything yeah. in the waterway and also you couldn't afford to put that kind of product in the environmental i mean it was a very isolated small body of water and you could never do that in something like Lake Mead that's drinking water and things like that. So the only way to get rid of these that are effective, other than a natural kill-off because they've just eaten the lake clear, is to use poisons that just aren't acceptable. And I have to say, you know, one of the things that did lead the way before I got here was Stephen Phillips uh, from Pacific State Marine Fisheries Commission and Bruce Hines uh, worked with the Seaplane Pilots Association and the Washington SPA. And they created our first training video that we did on how to inspect and decontaminate a seaplane. That's right. Which we have mod or we've updated since then. And I think we need another update now because we actually suggest that you use some chemical agents to partic- uh, potentially clean the float compartments. And I know that right now it's the, the position of the Pacific State Marine Fisheries Commission that you do not introduce these chemical solutions to having a kill-off we're or not to using, decontaminate. Yeah, we're not using that. For decontaminating watercraft, what we're doing is hot water and high pressure. So hot water kills them and high pressure removes them. But we don't want to void the manufacturer's warranty, so we're not using any chemicals at all. Yeah, and so uh, essentially what we're looking for is 140-degree water is the best kill uh, for hot water. We want to see that 140-degree temperature. So if you're washing down your seaplane, if you're washing out the inside of your float compartments or anything else, you want to use generally a pressure sprayer with 140-degree water. Is, Is there a certain amount of time? 
yeah, that you, you want it on. Yeah, you don't necessarily have to have the high pressure. It's the hot water that's yeah. going to kill it. It's just that, that it, yeah. it's a vehicle to, a to deliver it. Yes. Yeah, That's what we did when we were in Lake Mead. Remember, we sprayed it down. So it's 140 degrees for 10 seconds, kills adult zebra mussels. Makes sense. Okay. And that's adults. And so as you get younger and younger in the life cycle, they're more and more susceptible to that 140 degree temperature. Or if you can't get to 140 degrees, just have a longer exposure time. So 104 degrees for 40 seconds will equal 140 degrees for 10 seconds. That makes sense. So obviously, you know, you either want that duration or you want that hot to get to the strongest. I mean, if the adult is going to be the hardest to remove and everything else is going to die as you get to that temperature, correct? as you get that, to that duration. So going back just a little bit. So, you know, we're worried about restricting seaplane access. Obviously, you know, just the general condition of the water is something that we want to keep, you know, sustainable if we're showering and flushing the toilet and we need water for that. So we're seeing this in Montana, Colorado, Alaska. I know that, Steve, this is something that you work on constantly. Um, what's what's happening in Montana right now? Is aren't they draining a body of water? They do have a lake that they're uh, draining. Uh, they're also draining one in Alaska, or planning to drain one in Alaska right now, just north of Anchorage. And you know we're very engaged with Montana in particular because we have some straight float operators there, which we have more of a concern of, and we have to deal with a little bit differently. And it's a very sensitive area because you've got, you know, just a tremendous watershed there that starts in Montana and makes its way downstream. But we're seeing even in Alaska, where I don't think anyone could have ever imagined in the float plane community and the bush flying world, I don't think any pilot in Alaska would have ever imagined that you would have seen lakes closing for invasive species. And we are for the first time and we're monitoring it and we're working with the officials in Alaska and it's a lot of, it represents a lot of meetings, but we are seeing um, now plant-based infections, which are going to threaten the salmon fisheries. And so again, it's important for people to realize that these kind of infections look at how important salmon are not only to our food chain, you know, as a, as a, population, but also to the tourism industry and everything else that you do in Alaska. And so these invasive species will literally get to a point where salmon can't breed and spawn and lay their eggs because there won't be any exposed rocks where they do that. And this is major, this is a major deal. Well, that is, I mean, seaplanes are probably a major mode of transportation in Alaska. Yeah. And we had a known infection there that, quite honestly, I, I think it should have been treated because everyone knew it was there in Lake Hood. And unfortunately, it wasn't treated. And I think seaplanes got blamed for spreading the, the invasive species. And everyone knew it was there. I don't think it was the seaplanes issue as much as it was that there wasn't an identified waterway that could have been treated for aquatic plants. And it wasn't treated until it was too late. Well, plants, it only takes just a fragment of a plant to to inoculate another water body. I know. Every time I see a boat go through the weeds and chop up those weeds, I just, I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) I just cringe. So So I, what was it, what's happening in Alaska? Wasn't it, it was aquarium moss balls? uh, No, you're using milfoil. So in the pet stores, when they are selling, um, the the plants to go in fish tanks right and apparently i my understanding is it was a school 
that dumped their fish tank into Lake Hood, and it had aquatic plants. So now in Alaska, uh, as well as several other states, they're literally banning selling. Uh, so in Montana, it was the moss balls. Right. But oh, in Alaska, right. it's all the aquatic plants that go in your aquarium. So now the pet stores can only sell artificial plants to go in the fish tanks. Well, you have koi ponds and other areas but you know the, that moss ball mm-hmm. that was that was quite a rapid response that happened it ended up being in 45 states unbelievable wow. yes so wow. what was happening is, is they they bought these moss balls that actually had zebra mussels in them and so if if somebody does dump their aquarium that means that that lake or water body whatever they're dumping. even if it went in a storm drain anywhere that runs off into a body of water and that's what people have to understand i mean that it only takes one of these when you see the rep, uh, reproduction rates of these mussels and how prolific they become very fast and it was interesting so we had mark uh in our class one year uh the head of the national park service uh for lake mead there oh yeah mm-hmm. and they were talking about the extrament from the mussels is literally attacking the concrete on hoover dam and they're also treating UV light in the water pickup tubes for the dam. But they're going in there at, at some frequency to do cleaning of the water channels, the tubes. The trash racks. The trash racks. And they're right. going in there with, like, front loaders. Divers in, going down and, and scraping and the trash And taking racks. tons, so really, tons of mussels mm-hmm. out. You know, I'd like to point out, you know, living in, a, in Florida and everything, the big thing here, you know, we talked about it a little bit, but the pythons. You know, it's, well, that's obviously an invasive species, you know, this snake that you buy from a pet store and it gets too big and people release it into right. the Everglades. And now they're finding them in pools and backyards. So it's just, it's so interesting what you're talking about, finding a, a mussel on a moss ball and the kind of damage that that could do. So yeah. it's just, it's a complete change of perspective of how you could be affecting the waterway. Yeah. Well, it does take two muscles, Steve. I want to just oh, yes. clarify that. <laughs> a muscle. Star, a pregnant stars, muscle. The stars have to be all aligned. Yes. A pregnant muscle. <laughs> they don't um, re- reproduce asexually? No. Oh, I didn't know that. There okay. are species that do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like New Zealand mud snails. So, which we have in the Columbia River. So, when we look at Oregon, Washington State, I know we got a download from the Washington Fish and Wildlife uh, for us to put into the uh, Water Landing Directory app, which I have to say, I'm, I, I really have to stress the importance of this because we've talked about the app several times on this podcast and mentioned its importance and effectiveness. And I think what the members and the pilots have to understand is the meetings that Quagga and I are in around the country, what the waterway managers are saying is they're so impressed with the potential for the water landing directory that they're literally wanting it to be mandatory for seaplane pilots to use the water landing directory to vet the water and get a briefing on the water before they go in the water. Right, Dee, that's what you were saying. You know, the best way to prevent anything is just know what you're getting into. Know how to deal with it, the Mm -hmm. education of it. Mm -hmm. So you can't tackle something when you're sitting in the middle of it and you don't really know what, what you're dealing with and how to get rid of it. So yeah, using the water landing directory app to get any information on invasive species in an area. And just a reminder that that is member input. So we need help to update that information. We're working with federal agencies on a daily basis, as Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, I am trying to get updates from them. We can update the Water Landing Directory literally on a daily, weekly basis at whatever 
uh, whatever cycle that the managers can provide us the data stream, sure. we can make sure that the water landing directory is in real time updated very quickly. And we're committed to doing that. This is next to safety. Invasive species are our single biggest issues. You have insurance prices, you know, all the things we talk about on this podcast. But when I look at what is going to threaten our access to waterways and our ability to protect the water flying community for the way of life we enjoy. If we don't have waterway access, we don't have anything. So right up there with safety is this invasive species issue. So I really urge the members when you hear us or you see us in the magazine or any of our places that we communicate and you see us talking about invasive species, please tune in and please read or listen to what we're saying because this is a vital. If you want to enjoy flying seaplanes in the future, we don't have any choice but to participate. And yes. we do want to be the leaders because we've been very successful. And I'm so happy when I hear people say that, that we were impressed with your activities because we're trying very hard to make sure that that's the case. Like I said, the seaplane pilots have been probably one of my favorite, favorite user groups. <laughs> they're, they're so willing to come out and get educated, even though it's watercraft. But what I found interesting is seaplane pilots do have boats as well. So they're boat operators along with seaplanes. So just having that understanding that it's the same in some ways that we just need to clean, drain, and dry. Yeah, I think one of the things that is interesting, the little bit of demographic research that we've done, it seems like about 70% of our members um, potentially own boats and are operators. So this is something they're getting exposed to with their boats, and they need to know that it's just as vital as you know. All of our all of our efforts to open up water in Colorado are a perfect example, but to keep water in Montana open and Washington State open and everywhere else, and now Alaska is kind of our new and, you know, front that I'm worried about. Just realizing you don't live in a bubble. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're a boat or if you're a seaplane pilot, you obviously enjoy being outdoors. So this is just keeping those waterways available, fair and equal access, right? That's yeah. And like I said, it, for. it's an eye opener going to the courses, which is why we want to provide as much of the training as possible, because we want our pilots to be trained. And Literally, I came back from the training year one and said, I'm coming every year and I'm going to bring as many people as I can. And I want our board members and our members and our field directors to all interact with the resource managers that train in your classes. And I know that one of the, the groups where I brought our leadership for the first time, we had Phil Lockwood, the chairman of the board. Mm -hmm. I think we're, there's pictures of him on the new website. Yes, there so. is. <laughs> Holding that license plate covered in muscles. Yeah. And, and so you'll be able to get more and more. We're continuing. We just released a new website. We're going to be continuing to build out the invasive species support section of the website. And it's going to be, again, probably one of the largest sections in the end, because this is a really big deal. So thank you for all the work you do, Quokka. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. I, I just love what I do in educating. I was really impressed with the pilots that came out. I think you guys composed the majority of one of my classes in April. Was it two years ago? Two years ago, yeah, yeah before yeah, COVID. Yeah. But one of the last classes probably before COVID. Yeah, I had one class in March, but I've basically gone virtual for this last year, so I was able to keep going because the launch ramps are not shutting down. As, as you've probably known, the boaters are, and RVers, that's been 
quite the craze now. People don't want to get on planes, so they're doing get boating. on boats. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. Get exactly. in boats. Right. So it's really a, an eye-opening experience to go through this training in person in some place like Lake Mead, which is literally ground zero, where you can see growth on boats, where you can see the test plates that they're putting in the lake to grow. And and we want to replicate and we want to do our own testing in-house. And, and literally, I'm looking, I have a, a biologist that we would like to hire full-time. So I just have to figure out how to fund her right now. Uh, but we do have a biologist that I'm courting uh, that, again, we would like to have on staff. But going through the real-world training where you're doing the training on real boats, you bring like five to seven boats to the class and you have the decontamination equipment and you do all the simulated, you know, little things for people to find and go through the class. And then again, we're trying to provide a seaplane at the training as much as possible. So we can do a real world decontamination and inspection on a seaplane at the classes. Yeah. I got to experience it once and I'd like to actually continue on with that work that we were doing on what to do to decontaminate a seaplane what compartments we need to see that might be holding some water, right. what areas on the boat might have plant material, and how do we mitigate that from going to another water body. Well, this is awesome. So is there anything that we have not covered from either one of you on invasive species that we need to cover? Probably. I think this is a topic <laughs> that that needs a lot more attention. And I think what we're going to ask of our listeners, and especially the active seaplane pilots, is just get educated. I mean, what you said, Dee, just everything you can do to learn about where you're operating, look at the water landing directory app, know what you're getting yourself into and how you can how you can just keep these waterways open for people. Oh, great. If you're interested, you can contact Steve or Abby and have them direct you to my website so that you can sign up. And hopefully after this COVID stuff is over with, we can get back to in-person training. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to it. So we're going to get you out there. The Zoom was great. You did it very well and it was interactive and it was interesting, but I I, I am a tactical learner. I want to get my hands on it. I I do. Yeah. So this is the area where you're going to find them, you know, those dark, moist areas, 90 degree vertical angles kind of thing. So just thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate you taking the time. I mean, looking at pictures all day doesn't do it justice. It's true. When you actually go up there and see these, this growth on a boat and how, how fast it can actually happen, you know, really just turned your mind. Absolutely. Well, we know that the water landing directory app is not perfect, but we are continuing to develop it. uh, As is all of our communication methods for getting this information to the the members and it's important for you to know that we are committed to always raising the bar and making it a constant and never improving situation uh, that we're seeking. So um, it, it, I'm just so thrilled to have a partner like you, uh, D, to to be able to go through this process with, and that's helped me learn and, and become more educated on this. And uh, I'm glad we got to finally fly. We've known each other for several years. And uh, we finally got to go fly today. So you could see a little bit more about what our world is like. your world, yes. Uh What the fuss is all about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm looking forward to working with you guys in the future. Thank you. (laughs) So uh, to you, our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in this week. We hope that it's been an informative episode of the Water Flying Podcast. We urge you to be responsible. Take care of the areas you fly in. Be good stewards of the waterway always. Uh, This will be a continuing process where we all learn more about invasive species. So until next week, clear skies and blue waters. 
We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.